All right. Uh, I do need to be uh, to begin this morning by mentioning something to you about last week. Um, I made a few of uh, my comments that were not on my manuscript, and I realized after the fact I didn't properly cite a source, so I want to tell everybody I cited that source on the uh, video if you want to go back and look at it. I am not interested in being involved in plagiarism. So, <laughs> so I want to let everybody know I've done that and that I have tried to make that right. So, And I do apologize for the mistake. Now, Please turn back with me to Habakkuk chapter 2. Um, it has been a few weeks uh, since we were in this book. And so, by way of reminder, the last time that we were in this book, we saw that Yahweh was answering the questions that were agonizing the prophet's soul. Habakkuk had asked the Lord how he could allow such evil to continue unchecked in the Holy Land. The Holy Covenant people had transgressed the covenant in several ways. Um, God's response was that he was preparing for the Babylonians be his instrument of judgment against Judah's wickedness and covenant unfaithfulness. And this naturally led to even more painful questions for Habakkuk. How could God, who is of purer eyes than to see evil, use a more wicked nation to punish a lesser wicked nation such as Judah? Judah was deeply involved in sin, shall we say. But they weren't as bad as Babylon. This was the inquiry which God was answering when we had left off the last time we were in this book. And it began with instructions to write the vision in such a way that it would be plain for everyone to read, even those that were running past it. So somebody that had to read it quickly, basically. They could get the whole message. Um... And then we considered a comparison of the one who is puffed up in his own self-righteousness with the truly righteous who lives by his faith, specifically in the triune God. And this brings us to verse 5. So our text for preaching is going to be verse 5 through the end of the chapter. However, um, just to try to keep the flow of the text going, I'm actually going to read starting in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, Wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own? For how long? And loads himself with pledges. 
Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and now the preaching of your word. I pray that you would guide my words um, to faithfully represent what is written. And we pray that you would get all the honor, praise, and glory for it and that the name of Jesus would be uplifted by this. And it is in that name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, I feel the need to tell you there is a textual variant in verse 5. Um, most of your translations probably say something to the effect, and the one I was using, the SV, also says, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man. Or as one translation renders it, uh, as wine deceiveth him that drinketh it, so shall the proud man be. However, there are some manuscripts which have the word that would be translated as wealth instead of wine. And given the context of the passage, I think this seems to be a better fit, and therefore I'm going to take that uh, line of thinking, and I'm going to say that this text is saying that wealth is a traitor an arrogant man who is never at rest. And this is not to say that wealth is bad per se. Wealth is neutral. It can be good or it can be bad. What, what's going to matter there is how you use wealth. Um, we see in Scripture many times that wealth is actually seen as a blessing from the Lord. The issue is the idolizing of wealth. Or another way that Scripture calls it, the love of money. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
not money itself. Um, this is such an issue that Jesus believed it necessary to teach us this. You cannot serve God and money. He described it in terms of two masters, only one of which we can truly obey as a master. But this was no issue for the Babylonians as they were fully given over to their greed. There was no thought whatsoever of worshiping the true and living God. And greed is really what's in view here in this verse. Because not only is wealth described as a master who betrays, but it is an arrogant man who is never at rest. Greed is never satisfied. It only seeks more. Always. It says, His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. People just keep on dying. When my, uh, my, my grandfather, the few of you that know my grandfather, you know that he's very sarcastic and he has his dry sense of humor. And uh, he, uh, he, he likes to say to me often that there are people dying today that have never died before. It seems obvious, but coming from him, it's pretty funny. The thing is, that I'm trying to bring this up for, is people are dying that have never died before because death is never satisfied. And that's the point that's being pushed here, is that death is never satisfied, and like death, the greedy man is never satisfied. And as we'll see in a moment, the greedy man here is specifically pointing to um, perhaps Babylon as a nation, but more likely the king of Babylon in particular. Um, The principle, however, is applicable throughout all ages and nations. Wealth, when it becomes an idol, is a God who can never satisfy or be satisfied. It causes a man to become puffed up in self-reliance such that he seeks for provision, safety, and dare I say salvation from his own hand. This is the direct opposite of the righteous that we talked about the last time we were in this book who trust not in themselves but in God alone. Whereas money is a cruel master who never provides enough, God is a master who always satisfies the soul. Jesus said, I give you living water. You will never thirst again. Whereas money can never provide complete safety, Christ loses none of his sheep. He takes care of his sheep and guards us from the wolves. Whereas money demands that we work without end, God calls us to rest in Christ. Matthew Henry commented on this verse, quote, It is just with God that the desires which are insatiable should still be unsatisfied. It is the doom passed on those that love silver that they shall never be satisfied with it. Those that will not be content with their allotments shall not have comfort of their achievements. End quote. The idolatrous and cruel Babylonians only sought to obtain wealth and power for themselves. They were making a name for themselves. 
So God says of them, Shall not all these, in other words, those that you have pillaged and destroyed, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? In other words, the greed and arrogance of the Babylonians would eventually be their own downfall. The thing that drove them to great power would also be their ultimate demise. God's justice is funny like that sometimes. Now, there are five woes pronounced upon the Babylonians here in this passage. And this is what we're going to be looking for, uh, looking at at the uh, remainder of our time this morning, is these five woes. And these can be summarized as woes to those who steal wealth, to those who seek safety in stolen wealth, to those who build with blood and iniquity, to those who drunken their neighbors with their wealth to put them to shame, and those who place their hopes in idols. Now, what is a woe, first of all? Woes tend to be pronounced against people who don't think anything's wrong, right? They, they think, um, I'm righteous, or I'm all-powerful, or whatever reason they have for thinking it. Um, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm taken care of. And woes are pronounced to such people who falsely have um, this idea in mind. Um, I think, I know for me, probably for you, the woes that most often would come to my mind are the woes that Jesus pronounced against the scribes and the Pharisees um, just before his crucifixion. Woe to you Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites. And then on and on this goes um, over and over where he's taking those who believe themselves to be righteous and have the full favor of God upon them and no, not so much. He says it's quite the opposite. You have the full wrath of God upon you. So that's the idea here. So the first woe begins in what I'm going to call verse 6b because it's kind of halfway in the verse. It says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. <clears throat> the Babylonians were conquerors. That's what they were known for. They were conquerors. They heaped up wealth by means of conquering their neighbors rather than just trading with them. They would take their spoil and they would require pledges afterwards. So not, as, not only are we going to take your wealth by force, um, after we leave we're going to require that you continue to pay us so that we don't come and do it again. That's, that's the, kind of the idea there. But their heaps of wealth would crash down upon their own heads. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. And then this uh, phrase that is actually repeated, So, I, and I want to bring that to your attention because if something's repeated, it's really important. And this is the reason that these things are going to be coming upon the heads of the Babylonians for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. 
In other words, just as divine justice was coming upon the covenant people for their covenant breaking, divine justice was going to be coming upon the Babylonians for their cruelty, violence, and plunder. Just as they destroyed many nations and took their people and their wealth, so they would be conquered. And they would lose their people and their wealth. Their ill-gotten gain would be lost forever. And this was fulfilled, and it was actually recorded in the book of Daniel. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of them. And then at this feast, they would use golden vessels that were stolen from the holy temple in Jerusalem when Babylon conquered Jerusalem. And they would use these golden vessels to drink and praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Or let me summarize, the gods of wealth. So that's, it's not even implied, it's overtly spoken in scripture. They worshipped wealth. And then it happened... Just as Habakkuk had written here, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And from there it would be that Daniel interpreted what was written on the wall. Uh, And those words which were written to the king saying, You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. And then it goes on to say, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. All this is being quoted straight out of Daniel 5, if you want to go read it for yourself. The Medo-Persian Empire would indeed conquer Babylon that very night and put Belshazzar to death and end the Babylonian, or I should say the Neo-Babylonian Empire because this was round two for them. (laughs) In verse 9 it says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Again, the Babylonians felt a sense of security in their own power and wealth. And of course, if your sense of security comes from your power and your wealth, then it stands to reason that you're going to have an insatiable desire to attain more of both. However, again, God shows His justice in that the very evil committed by Babylon would be that which rained down upon their own heads. You have devised shame for your house, by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. So think about that for a minute. They're they're seeking safety. They're seeking to save their lives by their great power and their wealth. But God's judgment upon them is to say, no, by what you have done in seeking security and safety in your own self, no, you have devised shame. You will not be honored. You have devised shame for your house. And you have forfeited your life, or you will die by this means. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. 
Babylon was a city, a magnificent city, a humongous magnificent city, largely built on the backs of slave labor and plundered wealth. The city was known for its magnificent buildings and its beautiful constructions, but these works themselves cried out against their injustices. The beauty of the structure does not justify what it took to get it there, in other words. The stones cried from the walls and the beams from the woodwork. And we just read that these injustices were indeed punished when the Persians conquered Babylon in the lifetime of Daniel. Bear in mind that Daniel had been a young man when Babylon conquered Jerusalem. He was one of the ones that was displaced. So, so it was with many of the people who had lived through the conquering of Jerusalem that they also lived to see the conquering of Babylon. Indeed, the vision awaited its appointed time, and it hastened to its end. It didn't take very long for this to come to pass. And also bear in mind, Habakkuk is writing this before Babylon has even conquered Jerusalem yet. So all of this happened quickly. Now at verse 12 we read, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Again, this refers to the fact that Babylon became so great by conquest and forced labor. People were cruelly killed in battle. They didn't just kill them. They tortured them before they killed them. Um, think about this. For I mean, this was written before this happened, but at the very, very end, I'm saying the very last king of Judah. Think how they treated him. Mind you, he rebelled against them. I understand that. But think about what they did to him for this. Okay? They took him and his family captive. They made him sit there and watch as his own children were murdered in front of his eyes and then they gouged out his eyes. So that was the last thing he ever saw. And that's how they treated the royalty. That's the kind of cruelty we're talking about. <coughs> so people were cruelly killed in battle and many died as forced labor because I don't care if I'm working you too hard and you die, I'll just put the next slave in your spot. I have no value of you other than what labor you can produce. And if you can't produce the labor, I don't care if you live. That's kind of the attitude. <clears throat> there is no, um, there's no doctrine of the Imago Dei in their minds. They do not see uh, their fellow man as fellow image bearers of God. They see them as a means to their own glory. The Babylonians, and especially Nebuchadnezzar, prided themselves on the magnificent structures in their capital city. In Daniel 4.30, we read Nebuchadnezzar's own words. He said, Is not this great Babylon, 
which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. All about him. Making a name for himself. But the Lord describes all the conquests and all the labor that went into the building of this city as laboring for fire and becoming weary for nothing. <laughs> Some take this to be a reference to Babylon going up in flames, but I don't think so. I don't think that's what's meant. I think it's a more simple interpretation that all these labors were in vain. All these beautiful buildings were in vain. Think about this. You cannot hold a flame in your hand. It goes out, right? Batter your hands on fire. You need to put it in water. Otherwise, you cannot hold a flame in your hand. It's working for nothing in the end. If that's all you were going for was the flame, poof, it's gone. Why is this so? Nebuchadnezzar boasted that he built Babylon by his mighty power and for the glory of his majesty. But the Lord brought all his labor to naught because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory not of Nebuchadnezzar, but of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So question, how much do the waters cover the sea? Entirely, right? Because that's why we call them the sea. Because the water, if it wasn't for the water, we wouldn't call it the sea. So, just as much will the knowledge of the Lord cover the land, or that is the entirety of the earth. And one starting place was Nebuchadnezzar himself. The words I've quoted from him were the last that he spoke before God took his mind. Scripture says he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So much for the glory and the honor of Nebuchadnezzar the Great, right? But the Lord didn't leave him there. Eventually he did restore his mind and... When he did restore his mind, Nebuchadnezzar would praise and honor him, recognizing, and these are his words, all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. But this was only a start. The Persian king, Darius, that empire that overcame Babylon, he would actually issue an official decree that his kingdom recognized the eternal dominion of Daniel's God after he delivered Daniel from the lion's den. And again, this is just the beginning. This verse says that the entire earth will be filled with such knowledge. And the means should be obvious to us because it is us. 
Jesus Christ has commissioned His church to go into all the world making disciples of the nations. All of the nations. All over the earth. We're the ones tasked with going into the world to spread the knowledge of the Lord throughout the entire world. How? By the preaching of the gospel. And by this gospel, the nations are, in fact, being subdued even now. And this knowledge is spreading abroad. We should take confidence in verses like this, which guarantee that God's word will spread abroad and it will accomplish that which it is sent to accomplish. So there's hope not just for those that were looking at impending conquest, but there's hope for us as well. Because that's a promise that I think in part is fulfilled, but it's also not yet. The already not yet paradigm. So the next woe begins in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. There's the repeat that I was telling you about. So you, you make your neighbors drunk on the poison of your own wrath to make sport of them, to expose them and to shame them for your own glory. However, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. You will drink the cup of God's wrath. You made your neighbors drink your own wrath. That's nothing. You will drink the cup of God's wrath and expose yourselves as the uncircumcised heathen that you are. You are the one that will end up naked before the world, exposed, shamed. That's what God is saying to the Babylonian Empire and in particular the king. Again, we saw a literal fulfillment of that when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. We saw a further fulfillment of that when Babylon was no more. In Psalm 138, we read this. Though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly. But the haughty He knows from afar. And in Proverbs 29-23, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. So for a time it appears as if Babylon is the almighty nation to be feared and honored. They're unstoppable. But the Lord ensures that justice prevails in the end as those who cruelly shamed their neighbors is brought 
to utter ruin and shame themselves. Now, throughout these first four rows, we see the common theme that God avenges those who seem to be weak and He vindicates the cause of the righteous who have faith in Him. That's what we see over and over again, right? And we see this, uh, this phraseology repeated. Uh, why is this being done? For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Okay? So, if this is the repeating motif throughout the first four rows, the next row seems to logically follow. Because it's a woe to the idolater. It says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. And we look at that and go, well, yeah, I mean, you made it. Why would you put your trust in that? I mean, we look at that like all kind of high-minded, like, duh, it's wood, it's gold. You know, it's not going to teach you anything. Why are you putting your hopes in that? But um, <clears throat> here's the thing. Maybe we kind of have the same problem. Um, it may not be in the same form. It may not be a metal image. It may look more like a football or a truck or whatever you're into. Anything that you place higher value on. Um, honestly, I mean, it could look like your kids. Let me just say that. Anything or anybody that you put higher value on than God, that's your idol. So you may not have fashioned it with your own hands, although in some of those cases maybe you did, or somebody did, even if it wasn't you, some human did. But in your mind, you have fashioned whatever it is into an idol. And we have to be careful about that because if we're being honest, all of us have these things in our lives that we have to make sure do not take priority over the Lord. And I mentioned my kids because I can go ahead and tell you that's mine. says, woe to, him, um, yeah, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So in other words, these things, these idols that they worshipped, gold, silver, wood, iron, all of it, they're not alive. In fact, they are the creation of the one worshipping them. The correct order is the opposite because we worship and serve the true and living God, the one who created us. 
they fashioned a God in their own image, whereas we are people fashioned in the image of our God. Our God is truly alive. Our God can teach. Our God can speak, and He does. We're reading it. He says He's in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Now when this was written, the temple in Jerusalem still stood. And the presence of the Lord was there. But in the New Testament... What is described as the temple of the Lord? Again, it's us. We are the temple of the Lord. And so when it says, let all the earth keep silence before Him, He speaks through us. We have that gospel. We have that message that they need to hear. We have that message that will... Go back to 14. We'll subdue the nations. That knowledge that will be dispersed. It comes through us. So there's reason for hope right there. The Lord is going to bring justice. He always will bring justice. It may not come as quickly as we think it should. In fact, we may not even see it when it happens, but it will. We have that hope. We also have the hope He will save His people. And He will save His people through a message that we have. Shouldn't that excite us? Shouldn't that make us want to go out there and tell everybody? When they're hurling insults upon us and we are enduring Maybe not something this bad, but then again, maybe we are. I don't know the way things are going. We have every reason in the world to be confident, to not be sad or scared. Because our God is alive and He's in control and He will bring justice and He will bring salvation to His people. I want to close by actually looking at the words of another prophet um, in Isaiah 44. He has a, uh, a much more lengthy comparison of uh, idols to himself, the true God. Um, Isaiah 44, starting in verse 6. And I'm just going to read this, and this is how I'm going to close. Uh, Isaiah 44, starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid, have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Bear in mind, the one who knows all things, I know not any. 
All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. See these same things. They shall be put to shame. Same things. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not nor do they discern, for, his, uh, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say. Half of it I burn in the fire. I also bake bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? And this, this, this not, does this not describe what happened to the Babylonians? These were gods like they had. Did those gods deliver them from the hand of ours? No. Remember these things, O Jacob. In Israel, for you are my servant, I formed you. See that in the comparison? What we had here is they formed their gods, but he's saying, no, I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, 
who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, Cyrus the king of Persia, Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. I can't say anything else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have blessed us to be your worshipers. What an awesome God you are. I don't even know how to put it into words. I, don't, I can't follow up your, your word of what you say of yourself. You are the one true God and you have blessed us. You have shown favor to us. You have given us your grace in Christ and saved us and made us your people. One people. We thank you for that great blessing. We pray that if there are any here among us this morning that do not know you as their God, they do not know Jesus as their Savior, that they would. We pray that you would bring them into your church. We pray also that you would help us to go into the world with confidence, knowing that you dwell in your holy temple and that the knowledge of you indeed will be spread abroad throughout all the earth and the nation subdued, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord and every knee will bow before Him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.